This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investment Today podcast. And today I'm super excited to be speaking with Jonathan Feldman, partner at Goodman's in Toronto. John heads a business law group at Goodman's where he focuses on M&A and shelter activism, which often involves cross-border activism with U.S. activist funds targeting Canadian incorporated companies. Before Goodman's, John worked in the M&A group at Whiting Case in New York, and he's worked in some pretty high-profile activist situations, such as the uh, what I like to call the activist whirlwind that struck Ritchie Brothers' controversial March acquisition of IAA, and also recently, the Legion Partners campaign at Prima Water. Hopefully, we'll get to talk about those today. But first, thanks, John, for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks very much, Ron. Happy to be here. All right, super. So first, tell me a little bit about your practice. I believe the legal profession when it comes to activism is a bit different in Canada. In the U.S., certain law firms advise activists and others advise companies, and typically they don't overlap. But in Canada, my understanding is you have a system where you, I guess, and Goodman advise both activists and companies. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. And the large reason for that, I think, is the volume in Canada is dwarfed by the volume in the U.S. And so in Canada, unlike in the U.S., we will represent boards, we will represent activists, and sometimes it's hard to keep it straight. But there are very few firms, if any, I think, in Canada that would do just one or the other, like you see in the U.S. And that is sort of the market norm in Canada. And a lot of times the people, uh, the law firms that I'm up against on one file where I'm on for the activists and they're on for the board, I may see them on the other side on another file probably happening at the same time. So it's just the way that our market has developed. If the volume increases and things change, you know, we could end up moving towards a more U.S. style. But for now, we're very different when it comes to the way we represent our clients. I mean, do you feel like it's an advantage? And and I, and I say that with a, a point where I've noticed that I see every now and then an attorney that works for a law firm that advises companies go to work for a law firm that advises activists, kind of going to the dark side, depending on which side, because there's going to be the dark side. And right. then uh, the same, you know, vice versa, where somebody that works for an activist, a lawyer going to work for a law firm that advises companies targeted by activists in the US. And they always claim that it's an advantage. So I wonder if that you feel like it's an advantage being able to advise. No, absolutely, Ron. It's it's a huge advantage because you really do understand what goes on inside the boardroom and what goes on inside the activists thinking. And so you really do have the perspectives of both sides. And it's helpful getting to either a win or to a, a settlement because you have a pretty good understanding of what the pressure points are for both sides generally. Of course, every situation is different and unique like they always are, but there are some recurring themes and there are ways to get inside the head of the activist when you're on for the board and there's ways to get inside the heads of the board members when you're on for the activists. So to me, it's very helpful to be able to do both because it just provides a broader perspective of how the market operates. Okay. And so I wanted to get into some of the rules of the road for activists in Canada because my sense is, I mean, there's, you know, there's so many different rules and regulations, and it's really hard to compare the U.S. to Canada. But there are a few things that I feel like gives activists an advantage in Canada. And one of which is that if you own 5%, you can call an extraordinary general meeting to elect distant directors. So, you know, in the U.S., for example, a huge segment of companies don't even allow special shareholder meetings or the activists to call them. And when you do, 
it's very difficult to win. Uh, you need a majority of outstanding shares instead of voting shares. And there's always a battle over when the meeting is. So I guess my question is, is that an advantage for activists to be able to call these meetings? Absolutely. It's the ability to requisition a shareholder meeting is a creature of the statute. As you know, we have different provinces. Rules are a little bit different in every province. And, and then, of course, you have um, public companies that are REITs, for example, that are governed by the Declaration of Trust or, or publicly traded funds that are governed by the Declaration of Trust. But the general rule in Canada is that if you own 5% of a company, you have the right, an absolute right, to requisition a meeting of shareholders. And so that is a very powerful right. And insofar as the denominator is concerned, it is by ordinary resolution, with some exceptions, which we can talk about, that the denominator of which is those voting in person or by proxy. So mm-hmm. the number is, is never going to be 100%. You're never going to get 100% turnout, but it doesn't matter. So if you have a significant stake, and you requisition a meeting, you're already ahead by at least 5% and and maybe more. There are some statutes, for example, in British Columbia, where there's flexibility within the statute to allow the articles to say it has to be, the removal has to be by a special majority of two thirds, but that's the exception. But generally you get 5%, it's an ordinary resolution to remove and replace directors at any time. And so that right is is baked into the corporate statutes and, and all shareholders have that right. Well, the companies do things to kind of delay these extraordinary meetings. You know, the, I guess one of the main goals is you don't have to wait for the annual meeting, which could be 9, 10, 11 months away. You can call a meeting quickly. That's right. But then is it true that you're able to call the, the, the meeting quickly? Well, you know, this is where you get into tactics and this is where sort of being on both sides gives you an understanding of how, how hard you can push and how much you can test it. So our proxy season is ending. We were getting to the end of June and most annual meetings happen by the end of June. Mm-hmm. But then what we call sort of the requisition season is just beginning. And that's when activists sort of wait for the AGM to end. And then they get ready to start to requisition special meetings because they do take time. I'll give the federal statute just as the example, because like I said, there are variations. But the general matter is you get your shares 5% and there's a little bit of technical stuff where you need to sort of be mindful of. So you have to get your shares into registered form or you have to work with CDS, which is the Canadian version of DTC, (laughs) because only registered holders are allowed to requisition the meeting. So you do that. You requisition your meeting, and then within 21 days, the board, by law, must call the meeting. Now, a lot of times, games can be played by boards where on day, call it 15 or 16, they write back the actives and say, well, there's been a deficiency in your requisition, and you know, you, if you want to resubmit, then we'll consider it. And so there's that type of gamemanship, which is not different from the gamemanship you see in the U.S. when it comes to advanced notice bylaws. So there's games there, but, but putting tactics aside, Within 21 days, the board has the legal obligation to call the meeting. If the board doesn't call the meeting, then the shareholder has the right to call the meeting. Ah. No, yeah, and no board is ever going to let that happen because they want to be able to control the timing, the location, the process of the meeting. Never would they want a shareholder to take control of that. So ultimately, putting the games aside, and when I'm representing the activists, I always say you can assume that you know there's going to be some stuff you're going to have to step over like claims that your requisition is deficient, games like this, but ultimately they're going to call the meeting because they're not going to want you to call the meeting. That's so, so interesting. Yeah, so that happens. Now, 
while the board has to call the meeting within 21 days, there is no requirement other than in British Columbia, which <laughs> requires the meeting to be held within four months of the date of the requisition. There's no requirement on the part of the board, or at least there's nothing in the statute that says when the board must hold the meeting. Mm-hmm. And so insofar as getting a quick meeting is concerned, that's where the board can also play games or can be tactical and call the meeting for four months down the road or six months down the road. And we were getting to a place in Canada where four to six months was becoming the norm. There was a recent decision earlier this year for a REIT called First Capital. We were involved on the activist side where the meeting, uh, which was called actually by a different activist, but doesn't matter. A judge basically said, you can't rag the puck forever. A Canadian term, rag the puck, take your time, play slow. Uh So they said you have to have your meeting within a reasonable period of time. But generally speaking, four to six months from the requisition is not unheard of. Mm -hmm. And that could still uh, be an advantage uh, because the annual meeting could be 11 months. No, for sure it can be an advantage. And if you're getting out to that four to six month range, it's possible that the board may want to test the resolve of the activist to see if they want to, if the activist is prepared to go to court to demand an earlier meeting. And, and sometimes the activist is, is says, you know, we got to do this right away or let's go to court. Let's get this done. Because within the statute, there is the ability to involve the court to help regulate the fairness of a meeting. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the activist just says, this is part of my timeline. I knew they're going to play this game. We're looking at this as a four to six month project. And when we get to the meeting, we'll get to the meeting. So it really depends on how aggressive you want to be on timing. But I think walking into it, you have to understand that it's not going to happen immediately. Right. Certainly happens sooner than waiting for the next annual meeting. The one sort of caveat to that is if you wait too long to requisition, the closer you get to annual meeting time, the board may say, oh, you know, we just want to have one meeting. So we'll we'll take your requisition meeting and we'll have it with the AGM. We'll have your requisition in September. And they say, we'll have both meetings in May. Right. So that's a strategy from the company. Yeah. So so there's a bit of that. And that's where the case law is shifting a little bit to say, like, that's ridiculous. You better have a good reason for it. You know, sometimes companies will say, well, you know, the expense of two meetings and a court will say, come on, like you're a multi-billion dollar company. You can have two meetings like or have the meeting sooner. But this is sort of the back and forth that you see when it comes to the requisition. So it's an absolute fundamental right. And the shareholders ultimately will have their ability to get in front of their fellow shareholders. The question is, how painful is that process going to be? How painful is the board going to make it for the activist or not? And there are a multitude of factors that would determine the calculus in deciding whether you want to sort of be extremely tactical or just face your shareholders. And, you know, and, and there's reasons for, for doing both. And, you know, like I said, that's why, you know, representing both, you get the perspectives of all. Some boards, you know, what they say, let's just get this over with. Others will say, tell me every tactic I can use to lay this for as long as I possibly can. And it's a very wide range. Okay. So I wanted to talk about another subject that I think is, well, initially looking upon it, I thought was an advantage for uh, activists in Canada. And I still think it is. It's kind of an interesting thing. So basically, in the US, we see a lot of these kind of vote no campaigns where you have these, an activist investor maybe missed the director nomination deadline or for whatever reason launches a campaign against incumbent directors without nominating their own dissident directors or not able to nominate dissident directors. And a lot of times, you know, majority of shares vote against those incumbent directors and those directors, if it's a majority vote system, U.S. will submit their letters of resignation and those letters are rejected by the board and those directors remain on, which is what some academics have uh, referred to me as zombie directors. They get elected. Right. They don't get really elected. 
majority of shares oppose them. And we're seeing this potentially play out in a situation in the US right now in a company called Canoe Health, where the CEO is stepping down under pressure from three ex-directors, three directors that stepped down and launched a campaign, a withhold vote campaign against the incumbent directors. A majority of, of shares voted against two of the directors at this company, and those directors have not stepped down yet. Hmm. And uh, this, even if even though the CEO stepped down, so in Canada, I know companies incorporated federally. This is kind of a new rule, I believe, from last year. Yeah, the CBCA have tougher resignation rules, and I know that the Toronto Stock Exchange listed companies for a long time also have kind of tougher resignation rules for directors that receive majority no votes in uncontested election. This is when a, a, you know, an activist is not nominating their own slate. This is just a situation where majority of shares, uh, voting shares oppose the incumbent directors. So tell me a little bit about this. Is that like, do you feel like this is a, this is a tough rule that could help activists in Canada yes. when they don't uh, nominate their own directors? Absolutely. So there's different categories. It's getting, uh, it's getting a little bit unwieldy, but I'll just to step back for a second. In 2014, Mm-hmm. The TSX basically said any company that's listed on our exchange has to adopt a majority voting policy. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to what you have in the States. It applies only in uncontested elections. And if you don't get a majority four, you get more withhold than four, you must tend to your resignation. And within 90 days, the board has to make a decision as to whether or not to accept your resignation. Now, in the early days of this, there were a few uh, vote no campaigns where the directors resigned. And there was a provision in the TSX policy that said that there was exceptional circumstances, they didn't have to accept your resignation. Mm-hmm. And that got very unwieldy and didn't really work because they were saying, oh, well, this guy's been on for so long. This woman you know, has special skills, all this type of thing. And the TSX said, you are skirting the mischief of our policy. Mm-hmm. And so they said, you know, from 2017 forward, they said, no, 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 no. If you don't get a majority of the votes in an uncontested election, you must mm-hmm. tender your resignation. And exceptional circumstances really must be exceptional. Uh, and they're not supposed to be recurring. And, and the examples they give are the issuer would not otherwise be compliant with applicable laws, regulations, or commercial agreements. They would say that another one is that the director is a key member of a special committee and his or her departure would jeopardize its mandate. Uh, and the third one is that the policy was used to force out one or more directors for a reason inconsistent with the policy objectives of the, the TSX requirement. But so basically, you have to step down. if You, you have to step down because, you know, what they won't allow anymore is, you know, the director's length of service, special qualifications, experience, contributions, all that stuff. The TSX says no. So that's the TSX rule. Subsequent to that, last year and and into this proxy season, the CBCA, so our federal statute, any companies that are incorporated federally, now under corporate statute, have a majority voting standard. So in an uncontested election, if a director does not receive a majority of the votes in favor, they're done. They have to resign basically immediately. Mm-hmm. And so right now you have- and The rest of the board can't reject their letters of resignation. Exactly. Okay. So you, so if you're a TSX listed company that is federally incorporated, you can basically throw out your TSX majority voting policy because the CBCA requirement is more strict. And that's what you have to live with. If you're a TSX company that's, let's say, an Ontario company, a Quebec company, an Alberta company, BC, then you live with the TSX majority voting rules. Mm-hmm. If, however, 
you are a non-CBCA corporation. So let's say you're an Alberta corporation and you're not trading on the TSX. Let's say you're on the TSX Venture, for example. Mm-hmm. Then there, it's really up to you if you're going to have a majority voting policy. It's obviously good governance, but it's not. there's no requirement to do it. So you kind of have three categories of companies that are publicly traded right now in Canada. You have the CBCA ones, strictest standard. You have the TSX companies that are not CBCA, second strictest. And then you have the other jurisdictions where, you know, if they're not on the TSX, technically they don't have any requirement for majority voting. Okay, so I feel like you've kind of already answered my next question, which is we've been following this Arunia Pharmaceuticals and Edmonton-based biotech company. Where yeah. two in May, uh, two directors received majority no vote. And I noticed the company has a majority vote policy, but I suspect because it, it appears to be an Alberta incorporated company that's yeah. not a CBCA company, uh, so it's not traded on the TSX, that the, the, you know, the majority vote policy has as much teeth as the majority vote policies in the US do. In which case, you know, they may have to submit their letters of resignation, but the board doesn't have to accept them. Anyways, in this situation, there was an activist, this company, the fund called MKT. Yeah. They issued a, kind of campaign to have these directors step down. The company made a press release suggesting that maybe these directors will step down, but then none have since then. And then uh, MKT issued a new press release reiterating their request to respect the message sent by shareholders that the majority of shares have opposed these directors, that those directors should step down. So this sounds like you know a situation where it's kind of outside of the CBCA TSX rules. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a situation where I guess they have voluntarily agreed to you know, to put forward a majority voting policy, and arguably, I'm, we're not involved in this one, so I don't, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of it very, you know, every detail of it. But it's an interesting situation because, on one hand, the company can say we have our policy; it's not a TSX policy, and if we make a determination that we need these people on the board, then they will have an argument to say, you know, our policy worked. He, he did the majority vote; the board considered it, and that's that's so sad. Like that's the way our policy works. We're not bound by the requirements of the TSX or the CBCA. Mm-hmm. The other way to look at it is if you're a shareholder and you have a what they call a reasonable expectation that where there is a withhold the vote campaign and a director or directors don't receive a majority and they don't resign and they don't come off, then there are some inconsistencies with what you're telling the market and what you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. And to the extent shareholder is prepared to be bold, there are remedies available under the corporate statutes. It's an Alberta corporation uh, known as the oppression remedy. And the oppression remedy asks two main questions, and I'll paraphrase it, but basically it says, what are my reasonable expectations and have the actions of the company resulted in those expectations basically not having been met and, and prejudice me in a harmful manner? These are not the words of the statute, but that's the general concept. And so you could try in court to say, you have this policy, we conducted a campaign on the basis that you have this policy, you're not honoring it, even though you've disclosed that it's out there. So we're taking you to court and we're demanding that you, you know, you honor the the vote of the shareholders, which in this particular instance exists in a world where there is a majority voting policy, albeit not one that's imposed by the TSX or the CBCA. But what do you have it for if not to protect shareholders? And if you're not going to honor its spirit, then we as shareholders have been lied to because it's not what we bargained for when we bought into the stock. So that is an argument that could be made whether or not it would be successful Hopefully someone does it. It would be interesting to watch as an outsider, since, like I said, I'm not involved in this one. Yeah, that is very interesting. Yeah, and it, it sounds like this is an, an interesting case in that 
you know, it's not a TSX company. It's not right. a CCA company. And, you know, a large percentage of the biggest companies are located there. So it has kind of outside of that vote no campaign approach. But I don't know. I feel like we probably will we'll see more vote no campaigns. At no doubt. EBC no doubt. TSX companies, right? So uh, I get I get three calls a week <laughs> about just asking about how it can be done, like during proxy season. I think a, a bunch of shareholders this year were sort of just waiting in the wings to see how it all plays out. But I think that it, it is a very cheap way to launch a campaign because all you really have to do is put out some news releases and and it's pretty easy and and and, you know the vote no campaigns there's so many ways you can do them right like shareholders are allowed to communicate with each other they're allowed to say i'm voting against ron and john because i think they are incompetent or they can use uh, what we call the public broadcast solicitation where they can say publicly we urge you to vote against ron and john because they are incompetent so th- there, there's a lot of ways to do it. You can also quietly solicit up to 15 shareholders and like quietly say, Ron and John are terrible. Let's get them off this board. So there are many ways to sort of affect a vote no campaign that's incredibly inexpensive for the activists. And, you know, what it can also do is if it turns out low as a result of that, it can set you up for a requisition. So, you know, who knows what will happen in that case in Alberta. But there are directors that didn't get the majority. That will be a very helpful fact if shareholders decide after the fact that they want to requisition a meeting to say, like, these guys don't have the support, terrible governance, they're not following the will of shareholders, the owners of the company. Mm-hmm. And so it is a bad fact to be the subject of a vote no campaign, resign, not have it <laughs> accepted. Mm-hmm. You, you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable to an attack. All right. I wanted to get into one of the most interesting kind of cross-border activist situations and probably one of the most interesting activist situations I've seen this year, which is this Ritchie company now known as RA. They sought to complete its acquisition of IAA. This was a deal combining uh, Canadian live and online equipment and truck marketplace with an auto salvage and parts auction company. And we saw activists appear on both sides of the situation at both companies with different perspectives. And, you know, we could talk for probably the entire podcast about all the different activist campaigns and their efforts there. But one of the most interesting things that uh, occurred in this campaign was that Starboard Value, the prolific American activist investor run by Jeff Smith, provided a 500 million mostly convertible preferred security infusion into Ritchie, which when I looked at it initially, I said I viewed as a form of white squire help for Ritchie to get the deal across the finish line. And Jeff Smith, who runs the fund, joined the board. But it has a caveat. That investment did not come with votes. And, you know, in the U.S., when you have these large minority uh, investments, uh, they're typically from private equity firms and they buy large minority stake and it's intended to discourage the activist investor, maybe with a proxy contest. You know, there's a couple of situations that actually involve starboard value on the other side of the situation. And they usually come with votes and those votes are usually voted in favor of the incumbent management. And that stops the activists from winning a director contest. In this case... The Jeff Smith starboard value investment was not allowed to vote on this merger. So the merger ultimately was approved. And so I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts, uh, John. What was the goal of the starboard investment if they weren't able to vote in favor of the merger? Why was that a helpful situation for the Ritchie IAA to get the deal approved? Sure. Well, just a few preliminary points. The first one is a starboard does have the right to vote, but the way that the stock was issued they were post-record date. So they do have voting rights. They just weren't allowed to vote at this with respect to this particular meeting, number one. Number two, just so you know, we do lots of work for Starboard. We weren't on for Starboard on this file. So I don't know what was going on inside their respective head. We were on for Luxor. But what I will say is this. If you ever are on a board 
and you want to guarantee that <laughs> the securities regulators and the courts will come after you or, or that you'll lose in the court, engage in what we refer to as a tactical private placement. Well, tactical private placement is effectively what you're saying, which is you find somebody, you put stock in friendly hands, and then they help win the day on the vote. There's always ambiguity in the law. And of course, there may be some smart way to do it in the future. But right now, I can say almost definitively that if I'm advising a board, you are running into huge regulatory risk and huge potential litigation risk if you issue stock to a friendly party that can then vote in your favor. So I just interrupt you on that. That's with, with the Ontario Securities. Yeah, the Ontario uh, Securities board, Commission, the courts. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if, if there's a fight, we end up in front of the securities regulators, we end up in court, we often end up in front of the stock exchanges. It's often a multi-pronged war, you could say. Mm-hmm. And I think in every instance, this is going to be a big no-no. There was a case a few years ago called Echo Oral, where they tried to put stock in friendly hands. And mm-hmm. the securities regulator effectively unscrambled the egg. They said, like, sorry, like this stock cannot be issued, cannot be voted. Wow. Like, it's not happening. And wow. so I think that the lawyers involved in structuring this deal with Starboard were obviously very cognizant of this fact. And I think probably what happened was Jeff Smith's marketing value as being a really smart investor who is, you know, sort of the top of his game and Starboard at the top of their game siding with Ritchie Brothers. And also, he was allowed in their circular to solicit proxies in favor. I think the moral suasion of having Jeff Smith involved on that side probably had value that it can't be measured in direct votes, but I'm sure had value to the company for that reason. It was a huge endorsement by a very well-respected player in the market. So I think that was its point, but they were smart enough not to push it too far because I think that could have backfired completely. And that probably could have potentially killed the deal. So they walked the line very, very carefully and very smartly. And, you know, I would like to say if I were in the situation, I would probably have done the same thing because I think it was a smart move and the right move. Because like I said, and anything further would have crossed a line that I just don't think would have been successful. That was one of the many interesting aspects of that particular fight, I would say. Yeah, no, there was lots of other interesting things. But sure. I, I, one thing that you pointed out, which is they structured in a way that Starboard did not get a chance to vote its convertible shares on the deal, but they do have a vote now that the deal is approved. I'm just trying to think uh, hypothetically, let's say an activist wanted to launch a proxy contest in the 2024 proxy season. Right. And Starboard does have the ability to vote its shares. That's right. In a, in a director contest, let's say in 2024 or something. Exactly like that. right. Exactly right. And, 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 you know, and then, and then, you know, you'd have, you'd be in a situation, I guess, where an activist would be trying to unseat directors that might include Jeff Smith and whether they would want to do that or not, who knows. <laughs> there was, uh, at this conference we were at that you participated in that was quite interesting. One of the, uh, proxy solicitor on the panel said, some people accused Richie's board of entrenchment by agreeing to the starboard pipe. It may be the first time a company was accused of entrenchment for having invited Jeff Smith into the board <laughs> to be a member. So it's kind of a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a fascinating situation. One that, like, at least that I've never seen before. That's for sure. Okay. Well, maybe uh, I'm curious to see whether we'll see more of these non-vote pipe infusions to protect cross-border... Or, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the future. As you're saying it, it's becoming less and less likely that it will happen again, because like this was such an unusual set of circumstances. But yeah, I mean, it, it, who knows? But, but the use of a pipe and using people and putting sort of impressive people on boards, 
and almost as a stamp of authenticity or a, a stamp of approval, you know, the almost moral suasion is something that is an interesting, it's just an interesting tactic, really interesting, I thought. Okay, well, we are out of time, and I really appreciate it. John, taking the time to chat with us. This is Ron Oral, and you've been listening to the Activist Investor Today podcast. And we've been speaking with Jonathan Feldman, a partner at Goodman's in Toronto. Thanks, John, for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks, Ron.